I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffer distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our Lord is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For he has delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walked before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe when I spoke, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay vows to the Lord at the presence of his people. Here's a key verse. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. King David writes in Psalms 23, 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In verse 23, he says, I am hard-pressed between two. My desire, my desire, my heart is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Hebrews 9 and 27 tells us that it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes judgment. Revelation 14 and 13 says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. It's interesting that God in His sovereignty and God in His plan has put it on our network's heart to, to, uh, to talk about suffering, to learn how to suffer to learn how to suffer well. Part of my job as a pastor, part of David's job as a pastor is for us to teach you and to to model for you how to suffer well. It's part of our job, part of the pastor's job to teach you how to live for, not only just to live for Jesus, but also how to die well. When it's all said and done, how did you live? But not more importantly, how did you die? Did you die well? The death of the godly is significant to God. He does not treat our dying as trivial. There are times when God delivers us from death. Maybe you've had those experiences before where you were maybe on the verge of dying or you were in a bad situation and you thought you might be dying or you thought you were going to die and and God delivers us from death. 
because the work, we have work to be done. He delivers us from this. And then there are times when not, God doesn't deliver us from death. He delivers us to death. Because it's, time, it's over. It's time. The work is done. Let's be clear, and, and I want to be very clear, and, and David even said it while he was praying and, and while he was uh, uh, talking a minute ago, that God is sovereign over death. God is sovereign over our death. God is sovereign over our life. It does not take him by surprise when people perish. It does not take him by surprise. This situation in the gulf did not take him by surprise. Matthew 10 and 29 through 31 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. If God took the time to number the hairs on our head, if He took the time to do that, if He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, if He knows when a sparrow will die, and He cares enough about the birds in our yard, how much more does He care about us? How much more does He care about the death of His saints? Ezekiel 33 and 11. Say to them, as I live, declare the Lord God, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. And why will you die, O house of Israel? God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He knows when his saints fall. He knows when his saints uh, uh, die. He knows, he understands the situation uh, of people perishing, of suffering. Our text this morning is Genesis 23. I invite you to turn to Genesis 23. And the reason I bring all these passages up about death and dying and the Lord knowing and and, and all these things is because we have the privilege this morning to witness the passing of Sarah. We're going to see the circumstances surrounding uh, Sarah's death and her burial. The death of Sarah frames this passage uh, in such a way uh, where it's in the beginning and the end. And in the middle, there's a, uh, there's a negotiation with Abraham over the purchase of a property to bear, bury Sarah in. And certainly we don't have time to, uh, in, this, in, this, in this time this morning, to unpack everything here. But I do want us to look at the life of Sarah. Let's look at the verses, Genesis 23, 1 and 2. Sarah lived 127 years. And these are the years of Sarah of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kerjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Look at verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave in the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. These, uh, these three verses are the only times in this chapter that Sarah is mentioned by name. Other times she is called my dead or your dead. 
And as with most funerals, if you've been to a funeral, it is, it's very much appropriate to rehearse the life of that person, to look at the achievements, to look at the accomplishments of that person. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to review Sarah's life. We're going to look at Sarah's life. We're going to honor Sarah and her life and her memory. We're going to look back at Sarah's life. We're going to look and learn from her mistakes. We're going to celebrate her life of faith. And we're going to look to her legacy as an example for us to live on how to live. And especially to you ladies. To you ladies, Sarah is an example for you to look at, for you to model, for you to follow. And I hope that you'll take the opportunity to apply these things that we see uh, to your life. Verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. Uh, Sarah is the only woman in the Bible who is given an age at death. A little trivia there for you. Abraham, at this particular point in time, would have been 137 years old. Abraham dies at 175. We'll find uh, that out maybe in a week or two. You'll see uh, Abraham's death. So if we do the math, the final 38 years of Abraham's life would have been without Sarah. I don't even like thinking about that. I, I couldn't imagine the last 38 years of my life or any time, a year, a minute, a second, without my bride. 38 years he lives without Sarah. At this time, Isaac would have been 37 years of age. It's, it's significant as uh, you look in the Jewish rabbinical midrash, which uh, if, you, uh, if you understand what that is, it's basically a, a bunch of writings, Jewish commentary, so to speak. Uh, it's not scripture. It's just uh, Jewish rabbis who wrote down some information, who, who uh, compiled some things. And uh, in these uh, rabbinical writings that they have, uh, there, is, uh, there is significance to the numbers. There's significance to the number 127. I thought this was interesting. Uh, 100 equals great age. 20 equals beauty. And 7 equals blamelessness. And of course, common sense will tell us that uh, anybody that makes it to 100 years old lives a great age. That's a great age, right? So she, was, she lived to be a great age. The number 20, uh, she was 127, so the, the number 20 here, these, uh, these rabbis tell us, is a picture or it represents beauty. And we can identify and see that in the scriptures because, uh, because the Bible tells us that Sarah was a beautiful woman. The Bible tells us in Genesis 12 and 11, and when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Now, of course, that could just be uh, the husband talking nice about his wife. But look in verse 14. And Abraham entered Egypt, and the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. This, uh, this uh, woman, Sarah, lived. Uh, she lived to be a great age. She lived uh, a, a long life. She was beautiful. She was uh, a beautiful in appearance. But number seven, blameless. And when I look at this, I was like, blameless? 
Sarah? Really? Are you sure? The rabbis must have it wrong. When we look through the life of Sarah through the lenses of the human condition, sometimes it's hard for us to see blamelessness. Let's, um, let's review Sarah's life. Let's look back over, uh, over her life. And, and, and she had some major debacles in her life. She had some major sin issues that she dealt with in her life. We've seen that in, in previous weeks. Let's rehearse it. Genesis 16. Uh, I'll just give these uh, no specific verses. But in Genesis 16, uh, Hagar, this is when uh, Hagar is given, she gives, Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham uh, to have a child because they were, they were not believing in this promise. They wanted to hurry it along a little bit. In, Gen- in Genesis 16, uh, when uh, w- they find out that Hagar is pregnant, that Sarah deals so harshly with Hagar that she runs away, that she, she's, she's dealt with such, in such a way that she runs. She's like, I don't have to take this. I'm leaving. And Sarah... Uh, treats Hagar very harshly. We see in Genesis 18 that Sarah laughs in disbelief because of the message uh, that, of the Lord that she would conceive a son in her old age. It's almost like this mocking. Not me, it can't be, that's not right. And then in Genesis 21, Sarah throws Hagar and Ishmael out for good with very little provision and no security. Sarah certainly did some crazy and sinful things. And let's not forget that Sarah is under the same curse that you and I are in. She's in the, under the same curse of sin that we have to deal with as well. But in the midst of her sin and in the, in the midst of the messiness, God proclaims that Sarah is a woman of faith, that Sarah is a woman that we can look to, that Sarah is an example for us. How could this be? Especially you ladies can look at Sarah's life. You can look through the scriptures. You can study the life of Sarah. You can see what the New Testament writers have to say about Sarah. And she's an example. She's an example of how to live. Not only that, she's an example of how to, how to live with a husband for a long duration. She's also a, an example of inner spiritual beauty and outward physical appearance. Look with me at Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. Verses 1 to 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. Unbelievable passage of Scripture. Unbelievable that Isaiah would, would compare Abraham. I can understand Abraham, perhaps, even though he was a bonehead at times and did some stupid things as well. But, but the, being the father of the faith, being the father of the nation. And, but, but Sarah, hey, look to Abraham, look to Sarah who bore you. He's, he's given us this example of these rocks that are hewn out of this quarry, these, these rocks that are, that are, that are steadfast, that are, that, are, that are amazing, that are solid that are powerful. And we can look to Abraham, we can look to Sarah, 
the nation of Israel, Isaiah proclaiming, look back to your father, look back to your mother. Hebrews 11 and 11 says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. I think this is interesting because usually in my life, and, and you can probably identify with this, is I'm like Sarah, I'll laugh and I'll, <laughs> that's not going to happen, no way. God can't do that. That's, where's this going to come from? Where's that going to come from? You're, then you're, you're sweating and you're, 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 you're like stressed out and you're trying to figure it out. And Oh God, I don't know what you're going to do. and I don't know, I'm going to die and all this. And, and God provides and then you're like, oh yeah, I knew that. I knew he would do it. And that's kind of like Sarah here. She laughs. She, I'm not going to have a child at 90 plus years old. And God gives it to her. And she's like, oh, I, I knew he was faithful. I knew he would do it. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read this out of the New English Translation. It says, In the same way, wives, being subject to your own husbands, even if some are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without the word by the way you live when, you see your, when they see your pure and reverent conduct. Let your beauty be external. Not, let your beauty not be external. The braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, but the inner person of the heart, the lasting beauty of a gentle and tranquil spirit which is precious in God's sight. For in the same way the the holy women who hoped in God long ago adorned themselves by being in subject to their husbands. Verse 6, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You become her children when you do what is good and have no fear in doing so. In Galatians, this is amazing, in Galatians chapter 4, Sarah and Hagar are used in this allegory of these covenants concerning Mount Sinai and New Jerusalem. It's, a, it's an allegory between slave and free. It's this allegory between, between flesh and spirit. Sarah is a picture. Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses Sarah as a picture of the future glory and the freedom that we have in Christ. And not only that, she's a picture of New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. Remember Revelation 21 and 22. Sarah is an example that we can look to. Sarah is an example you ladies can look to. Sarah is an example of faith in God, that God will keep His Word, not just with a child. Check this out. I was doing the math, and, and I've got public school education, so this might be wrong. But um, Sarah was 65 years old when her and Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees. She was 65 years old. Now, I don't know how many of you out there are 65 years old, but I don't think that when I'm 65 years old or when Wendy is 65 years old, that she's going to want to take a crazy journey across the country to go live in a place and do all this kind of... I, I just, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about retirement. You're thinking about living life. You're thinking about grandkids. You're thinking about all this other stuff. But she was faithful. She was faithful. When Abraham said, it's time to go, she said, I'll go. And she went. Sarah is an example of a godly, faithful, 
faithful wife who not only possesses this outer beauty, but she has this inward beauty. God looked at Sarah, as we saw in 1 Peter 3, and compares her to a woman who is beautiful and precious in his sight, not because her flesh was painted up, not because she was beautiful in her appearance, and she was. It was because she had an inner inner beauty. It's because she had a, a beauty of, of, of a meek and quiet spirit, some translations say. It's because she was obedient to her husband. It's because she loved her husband. It's because she was a woman of faith. I mean, good grief. Sarah, uh, again, this is some of that math that you may have to redo, but, but uh, Abraham and Sarah were married a minimum, a minimum of 62 years. And most scholars of the, the, the books that I read as I was preparing believe that they were married, if we knew the time between, uh, how long they were married from the time they left Ur the Chaldees, and, uh, before that, if we knew that time that they were married, it could possibly be 100 years. They could have been married 100 years. That's faithful. I mean, think about Think about all the stuff that Abraham uh, uh, ended up, uh, just the, the boneheaded stuff that he did to her. I mean, he pimped her out twice to a king, right? He did. He's like, just say you're my sister and do this kind of stuff. I mean, <laughs> abuse. And she still loved him. She still walked with him. She still remained married to him. She's a picture. She's a picture of a faithful wife. I, I want to I kind of stop right here uh, and, and really talk to you, to you ladies and, 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 and really to you guys. And, and I, I don't, I don't want to be a vulgar or, or crass or, or out of line uh, when I say these things, and, and I hope you'll take it uh, in the right spirit. But you ladies, stop looking to the world for your measure of beauty. Stop. Stop looking to celebrity television and celebrity magazines and celebrity internet to, for you to say, well, that's, that's beautiful and I want to be like that. Stop it. The world is not our standard of beauty. The world is not your standard of beauty. Every time, every time we do that, every time a Christian woman goes to the world to, 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 as an example of, uh, or try to just use that as a standard of beauty, it validates everything that the world's doing. We're to be different. The world is trying to tell you ladies how to look and how to live, and what to wear. They're trying to, you know, they're they're trying to to tell you what measurements you should have. They're trying to tell you what augmentation you should have. They're trying to tell you all these things that you should do, and if you just look like this person, then you can have this success, and if you just do this thing, then you can have this kind of success, and, and all these different things. It's not real. It's not real. The world is not our standard of beauty. I tell this to the guys, and, and I had no, I don't know, just feel led to say this, but, but listen, guys, the world is not your standard of beauty. 
Stop comparing your wife to things that you see on television and things that you see on the internet and things that you're looking at in magazines. Stop it. It's sin and repent. It's sinful. The world is not our standard of beauty. When we go and look at those things, that's what I try to tell these guys that that I counsel that have addictions to pornography. They're they're looking to this thing. They're looking to this this person who thinks that that they think is perfect. And the, the thing I try to tell them, it's not real. It's not real. It's not... What is it? It's, it's airbrush, plastic, silicone, padding, and crazy Photoshop skills. That's what it is. It's not real. If, you looked at the, if you've read the news at all, you see where people are getting up in arms because they're getting Photoshopped in some weird way. It's, it's, there's, there's, there's somebody behind the curtain who's got mad computer skills with Photoshop. It's not real. Stop looking to that as our source of beauty. Stop doing that. Guys, men that are married, guys, those of you that are going to be married, do not compare your wife to some other woman. Don't say, well, if, uh, hey, baby, if you'll just do like this woman over here, or if you'll just look like her over here, or if you'll just do this or look like that, or maybe you could tweak this or tweak that or do this. Don't. It's sin. Your wife is your standard of beauty. Your wife, you should look at her, and everyone else pales in comparison. Everyone else. You guys that, uh, if you do that, um, I've got some friends that want to meet you after, after the service so we can extend you the right hand of fellowship. Amen? Sarah was a beautiful woman, but she possessed a beauty internal between her and her God that made her external beauty pale in comparison I love Psalm 139 I won't, we won't look, quote the whole thing but you can write that down and look at it and, and it was alluded to in one of the songs that we sang which was uh, I'm sure just coincidence right but it says but in Psalm 139 it says that I am fearfully that you are fearfully and wonderfully made that before the time before creation before there was anything that uh, before we even existed before time God wrote us into a book that the psalmist says here that, that God took account of every one of our body parts he took account of who what we are and who we would what we would look like and he says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I, there is not, it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake. God has made you the way you are because that's his sovereign design and will. Accept it. Stop looking to the world and start looking to God. Back in Genesis 23. Verse 2. And Sarah died at Kirjath Arba, and that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn 
for Sarah and to weep for her. So Abraham is uh, going through this funeral process. We're kind of looking out and we're able to see that what Abraham is doing here, that he's mourning and he's weeping over the death of his beautiful bride and that, that uh, as he would, what he would have done is he would have entered into her tent. She would have had her own uh, tent, own space. She would, he would have entered in alone uh, with no servants, uh, with no one else, and he would spend considerable amount of time in front of Sarah's body, mourning and weeping and crying and thinking about his beautiful bride. The Hebrew words, if you were to uh, study and look at the Hebrew, it paints a really interesting picture of the emotion of the, of the time. It, it would indicate that Abraham would have been crying and wailing and uncontrollable emotion. He would have been very disheveled in appearance. He would have been a, a one who would have tore his. He would have tore his clothes. He would have uh, had pulled out his beard and his hair, and he would have likely gone for days without food and without drink. This is not just a couple of days. It, it would more than likely been been a, a week where he's mourning the passing of his bride, where he's he's uncontrollable emotions, where he's he's where he's um where he's fasting. He wants no food or no drink. He wants to just look at the memory and remember the memory of his bride. It's okay to cry. It's okay to show emotion. It's okay not to have it all together. It's okay in these circumstances when life is suffering and when there is, there is death and when there is issues. It's okay to say, you know what, I'm going I'm to weep over this. I'm going to cry about this. I'm going to mourn over this. We have examples of this with Jesus when Lazarus passes and he's dead and he goes to the tomb. And in John eleven thirty five, 35, a, a verse we can all memorize, Jesus wept. Our Savior, the God of this universe, wept over his friend. In Luke 19.41, when Jesus draws near to the city of Jerusalem, it says that he wept over it. He wept over the city. He was broken for the city. He was burdened about the city. He wanted the city to understand who he was. We see the same thing over and over again in the Scriptures. You can look at any number of people in the Scriptures, whether it be David or Hezekiah or, or Nehemiah or Ezra or, or, or even um, just anyone. And there's times of weeping. There's times of mourning. We see that when Saul dies and Jonathan dies, that David in 1 Samuel or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 1, that he rips his clothes, he tears his clothes, that he weeps, he mourns, he fasted uh, uh, that day because Saul and Jonathan had died. Why, why, why is this passage so important? This is the question I've been asking myself for weeks. Why is this passage important? Why would the Holy Spirit of God take the time to inspire 20 verses concerning the death of Sarah and the purchase of a piece of property to bury her body in? I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I got assigned this passage, I was a bit miffed. 
Let's just be, I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, good grief. Johnny gets Genesis 22. I mean, that's a home run, man. That's the death of, I mean, the sacrifice of Isaac and all that. I'm like, man, that's Jesus on the cross. And yes, there it gets 23. Uh, Sarah lived and died. What? My wife, she'll, she knows. I got this when we were on vacation a few weeks ago. I'm like, what? And I was reminded that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable and that we're to study to show ourselves approved unto God. And God has a reason for this. And although we don't have time to really break into all of this in this chapter, there is so much, there is so much here between Sarah's death and Abraham bartering with Ephron the Hittite over a piece of land. So just in a kind of a broad stroke here um, with the brush, this chapter is not just about death and mourning. This passage is really about hope. Abraham purchases this first possession up until now. If you will look at verse 4, in, in Genesis 23, 4, Abraham himself says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So Abraham and Sarah, they, they're sojourners. They're foreigners. They have no property in this place. They have no place to call their own. They are basically nomadic, and they're wandering from place to place, going to different places, settling here for a time, settling there for a time. And this is the first time, this is the very first time that Abraham gets to actually buy a piece of property in the promised land. He pays 400 shekels of silver. It's an exorbitant price for this cave and this grove, this piece of land. It's outrageous the amount of money that he pays for this. And in some ways, Genesis 23 is the initial fulfillment of the promise that God had given him that he would possess the land because this cave to bury Sarah in is his first possession. The very first possession. And God uses this to begin to remind Israel. Moses, writing this, wants to remind Israel that when the patriarchs die, when Abraham dies, when Isaac dies, when Jacob dies, they rehearse Genesis 23 every time one of them dies. They rehearse it. They rehearse, hey, we're going to bury you in this place because this is where Abraham buried Sarah. This is the, the possession that he bought. It's significant. All the patriarchs and wives, uh, save one, are buried in this place. Here's what's amazing. I'll tie this in with what Johnny preached uh, last week or the week before, whenever he preached. According to Hebrews 11, Abraham understood the concept of resurrection. According to Hebrews 11, Abraham understood the concept 
of resurrection. Abraham, according to John and, uh, and according to Hebrews, he saw something that not many people were able to see. He was carried in some way, in some prophetic vision to be able to see and to understand Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Hebrews 11 tells us, and you can look at this, that when he sacrificed, when he was fixing to sacrifice Isaac, that he believed that God could raise him from the dead if he went through with it. This is amazing. John 8. John 8 and verse 56. Your father, this is Jesus speaking, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now get that. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. And he saw it and was glad. This is Jesus speaking. And the Jews, it blows them away too. And, G, and, the, and the Jews said unto him, Are you not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? You've seen Abraham? Abraham's seen you? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham saw something on Mount Moriah that gave him some indications that the dead would be raised. That death was not it. That the fi- death was not final. This passage is Hope. It's a possession where he can bury his dead, where the patriarchs can be buried, where the matriarchs can be buried, where family members can be buried, but it's not the end. Jesus said in John 11, talking to Mary and Martha again with uh, the death of Lazarus, says, Jesus said unto her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, for those who are asleep or dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him, those who have fallen asleep or have died. One of the most amazing passages of Scripture, John 14, used in funerals uh, all the time, used in times of difficulty, used in times of suffering. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go, why would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that you may be that you may be with be uh, be also. How can we uh, in these difficult times have hope? How can in these difficult times, how can we, when our loved ones die, have hope and assurance? How can we, in times of suffering, and there will come times of suffering, how can we, in times of death, and there will come times of death, there has been times of death in our sojourn family, how do we have hope? 
How do we know that death is not the end? How do we know? How can we, like Abraham, in some ways see this, this idea of resurrection? It's because of the gospel. It's because of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus died and was buried and rose again. We sang about it this morning. We're going to sing about it again. Listen to this. This is, you're talking about hope. Here's hope. 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will be sound, and the dead in Christ will raise imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall it come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks, but thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. Abraham knew that it was not the end. This passage is not the end. Jesus is the victory. The death, uh, is again, is not the end. We have hope. Do you have hope? If you don't have hope, then the Scripture says that we would, are, are miserable. We don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going to happen when we die. We don't know what's going to happen when loved ones go and pass on. If you were to drop dead right now, do you know? Do you have assurance? Do you have hope that it's not the end? The Bible says now is the appointed time and that today is the day of salvation. Sarah's legacy lives on. The the question that I I really want to leave us with is, is what legacy are you leaving? What legacy are we leaving? Ladies, what legacy are you leaving when people look at your life years down the road? Well, all they have to say is, yeah, she was a beautiful woman. Or will they say there's inner beauty? There's an inner spirituality. There's something that pales in comparison. Everything else pales in comparison compared to her love for Jesus and her walk with the Lord. Are you leaving a legacy that's full of hope in Jesus and the gospel? Are you leaving a legacy that reveals that you are more concerned about inner spiritual beauty or outward fleshly beauty? What is it? Think about the legacy of Sarah. Again, this is public school math, but at the time that Peter writes about Sarah, that's approximately uh, approximately 2,000 years, perhaps 3,000. Her legacy lives on and on and on and on to today, and it lives on and on and on. What about your legacy? 
when people look at you in 100 years or 200 years or 400 years or 2,000 years, will they see you or will they see Jesus? Will they see you or will they see the gospel? Will they see a life of faith? Let's pray. Father.